If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. If you found your way there, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Again, the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And the most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. You can be seated. If I were to ask you this question this morning, what does success in ministry look like? What does success in ministry look like? So let's let's consider maybe a church, for example. What what does a successful church look like? Now, if you were to ask some people, they would say that a successful church is recognized by the number of people who come in the door, by the number of ministries that that church has, by the amount of money that it brings in. By the dynamics of the people and the leadership, that is what a successful church looks like. But we know and understand from the Scriptures that large crowds and large numbers do not necessarily mean good health. Well, maybe they would say, well, success looks like everything going well, right? Because if you're doing the will of God, then everything should go well for you according to the standards of the world, right? But in fact, it's a little more difficult than that. Because when we look at success, success doesn't look like, scripturally, biblical success does not look like what the world gauges success by. Now, a church can be large and be successful in God's eyes, but a church can also be smaller and still be successful in God's eyes. And by successful, I don't mean, again, successful in the world's standards. I mean by obedience to God. So what do we do when things don't go the way we expect them to go? We've talked about churches. Maybe we talk about personal ministries. Every time, all of us in this room are ministers this morning of the gospel of God. And maybe we have a ministry that we do. Maybe we go out and we serve in the soup kitchen. Maybe we go out on the streets and we preach the gospel. Maybe we have a ministry where we're inviting our neighbors to our homes and having a Bible study or, or doing a Bible study in a coffee shop sometime during the week. And we have great expectations. We have things that we hope that we'll see come out of that. But what do we do when things don't go the way that we hope that they would? And instead of being a large, successful thing, maybe it's just a number, small number of people. Or maybe something happens and we're accused of, of something and, and it's not necessarily the case. What happens when others judge our ministry a failure? Somebody looks at what we do and they say, well, that just seems like a waste of time. How, how, how does that glorify God? There's only one person that comes to your Bible study. The question I want to ask you this morning, the question that Paul answers in this passage this morning, is what is the most important thing when it comes to gospel ministry? What matters? 
How do we gauge the successfulness of gospel ministry? Because you see, this is exactly where the Apostle Paul found himself in this passage of Scripture. He'd been led by God's providential hand to preach the gospel in Europe. And then he had that Macedonian call to go to Philippi, and he went all these other places. And now Paul has ended up in Rome, which is the place that he had desired to go for so often. He wanted to go to Rome and preach the gospel, but he found himself in Rome, not in the way that he thought that he would be there. He wanted to just go freely and to preach the gospel, but Paul is now in Rome. He's exactly where he wanted to be, but he's there and he's imprisoned. His trial has happened. He had appealed his case directly to Caesar as a Roman citizen, and now he's sitting there in jail awaiting his sentencing. He's in house arrest. He didn't, and Paul, as he writes this letter to the church of Philippi, Paul has no clue what's going to happen to him. He could be, uh, he could be released. He could be further punished. He could be put to death. He could just be held in prison indefinitely. And all these things were no doubt passing through the apostle's head. And this state of affairs, Paul sitting in house arrest in prison in Rome, was the reason why the church at Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to Paul. They had heard about his situation. And in their mind, the church of Philippi struggled to reconcile what they knew about gospel ministry, what they knew about the proclamation of the gospel, what they expected to see with what they actually saw. They struggled to reconcile how could this be God's purpose for Paul to be sitting in prison in Rome when there is such a great need for the gospel to be proclaimed. They assumed that Paul must be discouraged, oppressed, and downtrodden in such a situation, and no doubt, perhaps even word had reached back to them that Paul had done something wrong, that he was wrong for doing what he was doing. Because see, Paul could have been released at an earlier time. If he had just been willing to compromise on a few things and to step back, he could have gotten out of prison. But Paul was unwilling to compromise for the truth of the gospel. He wanted to go to the very end because he wanted to say, I am here for no other reason than for the cause of Christ. So in these opening verses that we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw Paul lay out his thankfulness to this church, his thankfulness for their support, his thankfulness for their prayers and their encouragement. But he immediately moves to the topic at hand because he wants to correct their wrong viewpoint about what is happening in his life. In order to understand this, we have to understand the Apostle Paul. When we look at the Apostle Paul, what is his passion What is everything that drove the Apostle Paul to do what he did? And whether he was in prison or out of prison, whether he was in the city or in the country, Paul was driven by one overarching passion, and that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the church at Rome earlier. And in Romans chapter 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That sums up Paul's life. He was not ashamed of the gospel. So everywhere he went, Paul was proclaiming the truth of who Christ was. It was what drove everything about his life. When he woke up in the morning, his mind was focused on the gospel. When he sat down to lunch, his mind was focused on the gospel. When he laid his head down on his pillow at night, Paul was focused on the gospel. So the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is the progress of the work. The progress of the work. Look what Paul says now. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. There's an importance of knowledge that Paul wanted to convey to the church at Philippi. Because the news had reached them that Paul was in prison. 
And they were distressed. So again, they had sent Epaphroditus to him to discover the truth and to encourage him. And based on what Paul says here in these verses, we know that they feared that Paul's imprisonment was a setback to the gospel ministry in Rome. They loved Paul, and he loved them. And so he wants them to know the truth about what is actually happening. He wanted to encourage them in the truth, because notice his opening words there, I want you to know. Isn't it interesting how truth is an encouragement to the weary soul. These believers were struggling in Philippi. They were struggling with understanding what was going on because they didn't have the full picture of everything that was happening. So Paul says, I want you to know and understand. And brothers and sisters, the same thing is true for us in this world. Truth is the balm for the weary soul. Just a week or two ago, I saw a cartoon uh, online. It was kind of dr- drawn in the similar style of like how political cartoons used to be. And interestingly enough, this cartoon uh, is dr- these cartoons are drawn by a man uh, who used to be a Christian but now has renounced his faith, but he draws religious cartoons. And, and in this cartoon, what he had was a, a large circle, and it said, the trials in your life. And then over here in the very bottom, away from that corner, he had another small little circle, and it said, theological understanding. And so what he was trying to say was that in the trials of our life, theology has no part to play in dealing with the trials of our life. And what I wanted to do was to redraw that cartoon and just to switch the titles and put the trials in our life as this small little dot over here and theological understanding in the big circle. Because that's exactly what we need in the trials of our life is to understand the truth of who God is. Because understanding the truth of who God is helps us. We can't find any other real help in this world in the trials of our life if we don't have a proper understanding of who God is. And so Paul writes back to the church at Philippi to encourage them in the truth. He uses the word brethren here. He uses it six times throughout this book. And it's just this encouragement of unity in the cause of Christ. Paul here was not concerned about himself. He's sitting in prison, and his desire is to not talk about himself so much as it is to encourage the brethren and encourage those souls who were weary in Christ and in the work of the gospel ministry. Paul writes them because he wants them to know the truth, because they've heard contradicting things about him. Think about this today. If if we got news this morning that some pastor in Haywood County had been arrested and thrown into prison, what would be the response of the church? Just a couple of years ago, November 17th, 2018, there was a young man by the name of John Allen Chow who died while trying to reach the inhabitants of the North Sentinel Island. If you're not familiar with the North Sentinel Island, it's just uh, a little off, it's on the far out, from, it actually belongs to the nation of India, but it's further out on their western coast. It's a completely unreached people group. They've only been contacted maybe less than three or four times in the entire history of the world. They estimate there's around 200 people that live on this island, have no contact with the outside world. And after discovering this in college, John began to experience a burden for the souls of these people. So he spent several years learning all he could about preparing to go and to contact them, to share the gospel with them, and to hopefully live amongst them and to translate their language. Now, what John was attempting to do was not not just a daring and a difficult task. It was also a forbidden task because it is illegal for anyone to go to the island and to contact these people. 
So as John made his way there, he paid some fishermen to take him closer to the island over a number of days. And the first time he got a little close to the island just to see what was going on, the second day he actually got out into the water and attempted to communicate with some of the of the Sentinelese people, one of them shooting an arrow at him which stuck into his Bible. He got back into the boat and they went back and he came back the next day. And the next day, he actually got out of the boat and went onto the island. And the last things that the fishermen, who were some distance away, saw was the Sentinelese people dragging a body through the sand and burying it on one portion of the island. Now, in the days that followed the news of John going to this island, he was called foolish, he was called reckless, he was called a thrill seeker, he was called just stupid for attempting to go to this island. And what's interesting is that that response came not only just from a secular world. Obviously, we understand that a secular world would look at this and say, well, this is just some white colonizer who's trying to go and to, to turn these people into, uh, into uh, uh, Christians. But what was interesting is that there were even some inside the church who criticized what John did. And they said, oh, well, we just have to realize that there are some people who are unchristianizable. There are some people who we just cannot take the gospel to. And you have to do all these other things. And in fact, I, I was just rereading last night at the back through some, some new articles, and one of them said, is, well, we just have to realize that there are some people who are unreachable and that you can't just walk into somewhere and begin to proclaim the gospel. And the question I had in my mind is, is like, well, what do you do with the New Testament? Because that's exactly what Paul did everywhere he went. He just walked into a city and began to proclaim the gospel. And so you have this young man who, who gave his very life for the cause of the gospel. He gave his very life for the truth of the gospel. Why? Because he understood the truth. He understood that truth was what these people needed. And so Paul says, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul had a complete trust in Christ and God's providence. He had the ability to look at his circumstances from that perspective. When Paul looked at his life and he looked at everything that happened, he was able to look at his circumstances through the lens of God's providence and understand that everything was in accordance with God's will. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about everything that he had suffered. He talks about imprisonments, beaten without number, times in danger of, of death, five times receiving 39 lashes from the Jews, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a day and night spent in the deep, frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, among false brethren. Paul knew what it was like to suffer for the cause of the gospel, but he also could look at it through the lens of Christ's providence and his guidance. Paul did not want his circumstances to be a stumbling block to the believers at Philippi. He wanted them to understand that even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, that God is still at work. Brothers and sisters, when bad things and difficult circumstances happen in our life, that does not mean that God is not at work in our life. What a hopeless place to live if we think that bad things and difficult circumstances means that God is no longer at work or that God has abandoned us. But it's in the very midst of those circumstances that we can hope and trust that all hope is not lost because God is still fully and totally in control. I loved what Matthew Henry described about Paul's circumstance here. Matthew Henry called Paul's situation here a strange chemistry of providence. Now, I love that description. 
Because to look at Paul's circumstance, you think, well, this is an impossible situation, right? How could Paul do what God has called him to do while he's under house arrest in Rome? How could he handle the things that he needs to do? How could he do what he needs to do? Because, brothers and sisters, perspective makes all the difference. Paul was able to look past his present circumstances to see the greater good that God was doing. Paul was able to look past his present circumstances to look at the Word of God and see that all throughout the Scripture, God has always kept and protected and provided for His people, even when things didn't look like they were going their way. I've been listening recently to a uh, podcast about the life of John MacArthur, and one thing that I had never known about him was that very early on in his ministry, when his children were still fairly young, uh, John MacArthur's wife and one of his daughters were uh, on their way up to Northern California, and they had a very serious accident where the car rolled over several times. And the daughter was injured, but not seriously. However, John's wife, Patricia, was very seriously injured, was in a coma in the hospital. And they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know whether she was going to live or die. And in this podcast, they were interviewing John's daughter, and she said, I'll never forget about three days in, she said, we're in the hospital. She said, I go over to my dad, and, and she's like, you know, why, why is this happening? Why, why was all this going on? What's going to happen to mom? What are we going to do if, if she dies? And she says, I'll never forget. She said, he, she, he grabbed my face, and he looked at me, and he said, if you believe what you say you believe about who God is, you have to start acting like it. She said, and in that moment, I realized that if we believe that God is sovereign, and we believe that everything happens according to His will, that even in the most difficult of circumstances, we can trust Him. Even when it doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like, we can trust Him. So Paul says, brothers and sisters at Philippi, I want you to know that my circumstances are purposed by God. I'm not in prison by accident. I'm not sitting here because of some chance encounter. I'm sitting here because of the very will and the purpose of God. And brothers and sisters, here this morning, every single one of you in this room, we are sitting here this morning by the providence of God. We're sitting here this morning by God's sovereign will and design for our lives. And we must trust Him even in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's easy to trust God when all things are going the way that we want them to go. It's much harder when things are difficult. But that is where we must express that trust all the more. And so what does Paul say has happened here? He says not only are his circumstances organized and, and ordained by God, but they have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul knew that the church was fearing that the gospel task had been hindered, but what Paul wanted them to know was the exact opposite had actually happened. Instead of the gospel being hindered, Paul being in prison had actually allowed the gospel to go further than it would ever have happened had he actually not been in prison. And we can understand this from God's promises all throughout the Scripture, that God takes the things that seem impossible, and He does the possible through them. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers? They had sold him into slavery as a young boy. Everything that had happened to him in his life, they come back, and there at the very end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You may look at your circumstance right now and you may say, God, what are you doing? But trust that God is doing what is perfect for you. God is doing what is necessary for you. And you may not know the answer until years from now. You may be 20 years old right now, and you may not know why God is doing what He's doing right now until you're 60, 70, 80 years old. You may not ever know in this lifetime. 
But we must trust and know that God is doing his perfect work. Paul, again, right into the church at Rome and in Romans chapter eight says, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What things? Some things? A few things? No, he says all things to work together for good. So Paul was encouraged because the gospel was going forward. Despite the outward circumstances, God is always at work. God will always accomplish his purposes, even if Paul was under house arrest and chained to a guard. Paul uses the word progress here. That word progress actually means, uh, it symbolizes a pioneer, somebody going through the forest with a, with a knife or a blade and cutting a path so that people can follow after them, so that someone can advance forward through a difficult circumstance. So Paul is talking about the idea of someone chopping through the woods with a machete in order that other people may follow along behind them. I thought, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. That Paul said, I've been put here, God has done these things so that I may cut a path and that the gospel may continue to go forward. Matthew Henry said that Paul's joy in this section of the letter is the elation of one to whom all things work together for good because his destiny is inseparably linked with that of the gospel. What a description. Matthew Henry says that Paul's destiny is inseparably linked with that of the gospel. May that be the description of our lives. That everything that we, who we are, our destiny, it would be so closely connected with the gospel that when people see us, they say, that, that guy over there, he, he's a gospel guy. That lady over there, she's a gospel lady. They they have a desire to see the truth of the gospel go forward. They have a desire to put forth the effort. They have a desire to do the work. They have the desire to see God's plan move forward. So Paul says here that he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to know the truth of what has happened. Second thing I want you to notice in verse 13 is the gospel. Look at verse 13. He says, so that my imprisonment, in the cause of Christ, it has become so well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Paul says that his imprisonment here was for the cause of Christ. Now, earlier I asked you to imagine what would happen if someone was arrested this morning, a pastor was arrested and thrown into prison. Now, in our culture, we immediately assume when someone hear that someone has been arrested and thrown into prison that they have committed some type of heinous crime. And in our culture, that is typically a correct assumption, right? Because in our period of time right now in the United States, typically people are not being arrested for the proclamation of the gospel. They're not being arrested for being preachers of truth and righteousness, although that day can and probably soon will happen in our country. And when that happens, we'll have to adjust our perspective. But in Paul's day, this was, this was understandable. Paul was not arrested for a crime. He was not arrested because he committed a crime. He was arrested because he was committed to Christ. Paul could have, have escaped this had he compromised it, but he refused to do so. He, he was imprisoned for Christ's sake, and in doing so, he bore witness for Christ. He said, I'm sitting in prison not because I've done anything wrong, but only because I have stood for what is right and for what is true. Over and over in Paul's letters that he wrote while he was in prison, he repeated this mantra in Colossians. He says that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. In Philemon, he says, such I'm a, such a person as Paul, the aged and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul knew what it was like to suffer for the cause of Christ. 
And Paul could sit in prison and rejoice in that fact because he knew, I'm not here because I've done something wrong. Paul had a clear conscience before God. He didn't have to doubt about what was going on because he knew what he had done. He knew the truth he had proclaimed, and he knew that he was in prison for no other reason than for the sake of the gospel of Christ. He was suffering alongside of Christ as he sat there in prison. The gospel was going forth in ways and circumstances that no one could have ever dreamed that it would go. The gospel, secondly, there was going to the guards. As we said earlier, Paul was under house arrest. Uh, scripture tells us in the book of Acts that Paul was allowed to stay by himself. He, he rented a quarters. It's interesting that he's under house arrest. He rented his own house, and they sent a guard there who was chained to him 24 hours a day. And as Paul was there, the Scripture tells us that for some reason, the, the Roman uh, guard and the Roman uh, leaders gave him uh, very much liberty that people could come to him while he was under house arrest. And as he did, he was preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. But what's interesting about this whole circumstance is that Paul, again, is chained 24 hours a day to a, ro- a guard of the imperial guard of Rome. Now, it's not the same guard all 24 hours a day. They worked shifts. And so as the day would go on, a new ro- a soldier would come in. He would unchain, chain to the next one. So Paul had this rotating door of people who he could witness to. He had a captive audience every single day. And so Paul was directly witnessing to these soldiers day in and day out. These guards would overhear Paul's prayers. They would overhear his devotions. They would overhear the conversations that he had uh, with people who came in to visit him. Uh, when his secretary would come in as Paul was drafting some of these letters he would send out, they would hear Paul describe his imprisonment. They would have heard Paul writing this letter to the church at Philippi and talking about the joy in his heart as he sits in prison. And no doubt it began to cause some of those soldiers, some of those guards to begin to say, what is it about this man? What, what is it about this guy named Paul? We know he's not done it. They, they knew the reason that Paul was there. They could see by his character. They could see by his attitude that Paul was not the, who he was accused of being. Their very clear observation of his life and character bore witness to the truth about him. And this ministry had a profound effect because Paul would later say here in the book of Philipp, Philippians that all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How did those in Caesar's household become saints of the true and the living God? It was because of Paul's witness as he sat here in prison. And he witnessed to those guards. And those guards who would hear him would share with other guards that they heard. And those guards would share with other guards. And the gospel began to spread throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. And as those soldiers then would go out on business for the Roman Empire, what would happen? The gospel was going to the furthest regions of the empire because Paul was stuck in prison, chained to a guard, and continually faithfully telling them the truth of who Jesus was. We can never know the impact of faithful gospel proclamation. Sometimes we we want to know what happens. We go in and we share the gospel with someone. Maybe when we're out at the Apple Festival, and you share the gospel with someone and you never meet that person again. Sometimes we don't know what happens. We don't know what God does. But that person, if that person becomes a Christian and then they tell somebody else and they tell somebody else and then they tell somebody else, that, that is the method of gospel proclamation. It continues to spread so that we may think we've only shared the gospel with one person, but God in His providence, because He has saved that one person, we now see that because of our decision to be obedient to God, 
that not just one person, but perhaps hundreds and thousands will come to know Christ because we were faithful to do what God has asked us to do. And this is how it was with Paul. Not only did Paul say that it was going to the soldiers, look at the end of verse 13. He says, and to everyone else. So everyone who came in contact with Paul heard the news of the gospel because Paul could not help but share the truth of who God was and what Christ had done in his life. We studied through the book of Acts recently in our Sunday school class. And everywhere you see Paul goes, as we already said earlier, every time he walks into a city, the first thing he begins to do is to find a group of people and to preach the gospel. Now, you know what people would call that today? They would call that fanaticism, right? If, if, if you have a person or you meet a person who you can't have a conversation about them without them talking about Jesus, people oftentimes call that, well, that man is just a fanatic right? Why can't we talk about something else besides the gospel? Why can't we talk about something else besides Jesus? Now, brothers and sisters, hear me clearly this morning. I'm not saying that every conversation, that we, that we can't have conversations about the weather, that we can't have conversations about the sports that we enjoy, that we can't have conversations about other things. But we need to live our lives in such a way that people know by our conversations who we are in Christ, that people know by what we talk about that we have a passion and a desire for the proclamation of the good news. And so Paul had not only preached the gospel to the guards, he preached the gospel to everyone else who came in. And in doing so, the seed of the gospel spread throughout the entire city of Rome, spread throughout the entire region, and ultimately the gospel spread to the world. Paul described this type of ministry when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reputation we had with you, how you turned from God from idols to serve a living and true God. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and said, he says, when we go into some of these places, he's like, we don't even have to say anything because the gospel's already there. They already know because you have been faithful to proclaim the truth to them. Because again, we never know the impact of a faithful ministry of gospel obedience. So Paul was focused on declaring the gospel even in the midst of his imprisonment. But I want you to look at verse 14 and see the third thing in this passage, which is the encouragement to the saints. Paul says, And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul's prison ministry had had a pointed effect on the church there in Rome. Now, when he says most of the brethren, that points to the majority of the believers in Rome. Now, before Paul arrived, the church was already established here. It was to the church already established at Rome that Paul had written the book of Romans, his magnum opus of theology. That church consisted largely of Gentile converts. And upon Paul's revival here, as he's imprisoned currently, he had preached to the Jews and another church had been established. So both groups are intended here. He's talking about the majority of the believers in the church at Rome. He says they have put more trust in the Lord because of his imprisonment. Paul's bravery and courage was contagious. God was using this quote-unquote trial in Paul's life to strengthen the church. Matthew Henry said that those believers in Rome saw in Paul someone who served Christ, served a good master. 
who could bear them up and bear them out in their suffering for him. They looked at Paul, they looked at his circumstances, and they said, well, if Paul can sit in prison, if Paul can endure what he's endured, if Paul can do this, then I can do it. I can see what God is doing in his life and know that God would do the same for me. And that's important for us to realize this morning. When we read the Bible and we read about what the Apostle Paul did and we realize what God did for the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was not a greater human being than you and I. The Apostle Paul was not a greater Christian than you and I. Because who we are as a Christian is not about the things that we do. It's about who makes us a Christian, and that is Christ. If we are in Christ, we are in Christ. It is Christ's righteousness who merits us favor towards God. It is Christ's righteousness that keeps us in God, not the things that we do. And so when we look at what the Apostle Paul did and what God did through his life, God will do the same for you and for I. He will work in the same ways for us as he did for the Apostle Paul. But not only did it cause them to trust Christ more, but it gave them great courage. Because they could see that Paul didn't fear the actions and the effects of men. Again, Paul sitting in prison, he does not know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die, but Paul doesn't care. Because he's not worried about what men can do to him. He's worried about the one who sits in the heavens. Remember what Jesus says? Do not fear the one who after he is, uh, he says, do not fear the one who, who cannot kill you, but fear the one who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. He says, don't fear what man can do to you. Fear what God can do to you. And Paul lived his life with that fear of God, knowing that there's nothing that humans can do to me that has any effect upon my eternal destiny. But God has so richly bestowed his love and mercy and grace towards me, I can't do anything but do what he's asked me to do. And the courage that these believers had was not just an inward courage. Paul's not just talking about they were filled up with courage inwardly, but it was a courage that was expressed in demonstrated action. They began to open their mouths and to share the gospel in spite of the temptation to fear and remain silent. Persecution of the church of Rome would begin to ramp up dramatically over the coming years. You can look at Fox's Book of Martyrs and read the things that happened to the church there at Rome and to those Christians. But now because of what Paul had been through, now because of watching his testimony, there was no fear in the Christian church at Rome. They were able to stand boldly to proclaim the truth of the gospel and not fear what men could do to them. The church at Philippi worried that the gospel ministry had been hindered in Rome because of Paul's imprisonment. But Paul writes them to let them know that as a prisoner, he has a greater ministry than he would have ever had before. He would have never been able to reach as many guards with the gospel had he not been in prison. He would have never been able to express and stand for the truth of the gospel in such a way to encourage the Roman church to trust more in the Lord and to be strong in their courage for the fight had he not been in prison. Listen to what Calvin said. He said, By this instance we are taught that the tortures of the saints endured by them in behalf of the gospel are a ground of confidence to us. It were indeed a dreadful spectacle, And such as might tend to rather dishearten us, did we see nothing but the cruelty and the rage of the persecutors. When, however, we see at the same time the hand of the Lord, 
which makes his people unconquerable under the infirmity of the cross and causes them to triumph, relying upon this, we ought to venture farther than we've been accustomed, having now a pledge of our victory in the persons of our brethren. The knowledge of this ought to overcome our fears that we may speak boldly in the midst of dangers. When we look back and we see God's people stand courageously for the cause of Christ, it encourages us, strengthens us, and gives us courage to do the same. And we need this. We, we need this in hearts. We, we have lived for so long as American Christians without the need for courageous Christianity. To be a Christian in America for so many years did not, call, did not necessitate courage. Because we were somewhat of a Christian nation. Christianity was, was socially and culturally acceptable. Nobody cared if you were a Christian. Nobody pushed back on you if you said you believed the Bible and you believed the truth of what God's Word says. But our culture has changed dramatically. We don't live in a, in a society anymore that accepts the truth of the Scripture. We don't live in a culture anymore that accepts the truth of God's Word. We don't live in a time anymore where people say, well, it's okay. In fact, now the, the culture has changed such that it was like, we don't like you if you believe in the God of the Bible. Now, they can't do anything about it yet, but that can change in an instant because they hate the truth of who God is. And the time to prepare ourselves for persecution, the time to prepare ourselves for difficulty, the time to prepare ourselves for trial is not in the midst of the trial. We prepare ourselves before the trial happens. We strengthen ourselves before the difficulty gets here. We make preparations by studying God's Word, by seeing what He has done, by seeing that His promises are always true, that He always keeps His Word, and by seeing that throughout the centuries, God has faithfully strengthened, encouraged, and kept His people even through the midst of difficulty. As we wrap up this morning, I want you to look at this final thing. Because there's something really interesting in these remaining verses. Paul talks about some of the responses to his prison ministry. He talks about what is happening as the gospel is being proclaimed there in Rome. And notice what he says in verses 15, 16, and 17. Now, he's talking about those who are speaking the word of God without fear. He says they, they've been encouraged to stand and to speak, but notice what he says. He says some, some of those who are speaking the word of God without fear, he said, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Isn't that interesting? Paul says that some of those who were proclaiming the gospel were doing so from envy and strife, with an attempt to cause him distress in his imprisonment. Now, who were these some? Now, there's a couple of things that we can easily answer. Number one, we can understand that these some were not people who were preaching a false gospel. Because Paul says, they had far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, some of them were doing it out of envy and strife. So we know Paul was not talking about people preaching a false gospel because had they been preaching a false gospel, he would have done what he did with the Judaizers and with the Gnostics. He would have boldly denounced their efforts to preach a gospel that was contrary to the gospel of Christ. 
What we have here is people, individuals who are preaching true gospel messages. They were preaching Christ crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, but they were preaching it with the wrong motivation. First, Paul talks about envy. Envy is, you know, the desirousness of something that somebody else has. The church, when Paul arrived there, was already established. And what we can understand from history and from reading what Paul alludes to here is the fact that there were some of the leaders of the church who was already established in Rome that were envious of Paul. Paul had arrived and began to proclaim the gospel and was having a very successful ministry there in prison. And some of these were envious because he had come there, because of his preaching, because of the influence that he had. And they didn't like the fact that Paul had so much influence. They didn't like that Paul had so many people attending to him. Paul says that they also do it out of strife. Strife is rivalry and contention. It also paints the idea of somebody who's working for selfish or self-seeking ambitions. To these individuals, Paul's imprisonment was a joy to them because it granted them more opportunity to pull more people into their sway. They denounced his Christianity. Many commentators believe that in this time, some of these leaders were probably saying, well, you know, Paul's in prison, so he's not really a good example to follow, right? He, he's not a great leader. If Paul were, were truly a good leader to follow, he wouldn't be sitting in prison at this moment. He wouldn't be there. God wouldn't have allowed that to happen. Now, this was all wrong. But at the end of the day, the gospel still went forth. They weren't preaching a false gospel. They were preaching the truth of the gospel. They were preaching the right message, but they had the wrong motives. As I thought about that this week, I thought about how could we be guilty of this? As individuals, could we be guilty sometimes of preaching the right message, but with the wrong motives? And I think we can. If we go out on the streets to share the gospel, if we do a ministry, if we are sharing because we want to receive the praise and the glory, we're guilty of what Paul's talking about here. The gospel is going forward, but we have the wrong motivations. There are people who proclaim the truth of the gospel because they want people to come listen to them preach, or they want the people to listen to them teach. Now, the truth is still going forth, but they're doing it with the wrong motivation. (coughs) Excuse me. Thankfully, though, Paul says that not all of them were this way because he said others were proclaiming the right message with the right motives. Look what he says. He says, some do it from goodwill. There were those who had been truly saved, those who were encouraged by Paul's stand, those who knew that God was working even in the midst of his imprisonment. And look what he says in verse 16, the latter, those who were preaching from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Why were those who were preaching the gospel the correct way? Doing it because they had a love for God. They had a love for Christ. They had a love for the gospel. They had a love for the lost, and they had a love for Paul. One commentator said, an intense love of the gospel and of Christ is the best preparation for preaching it. Loving the gospel, loving who Christ is, is what prepares us to share that good news with others. And these people knew what God had done in their lives, and they were so desirous to share the good news. They had that love that they continued to go forth. And Paul said they also did it in such a way from goodwill because they understood Paul's calling. He said, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
Appointed means to be placed or to be destined for something. There was no doubt in these individuals' lives that they looked at Paul that he had been called by God to do what he was doing. There was one purpose in Paul's life, and that was to be a minister of the gospel of Christ. So there were these saints who preached out of love, but there were also these saints who were preaching from selfish ambition. Look at verse 17. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Paul's basically just repeating the same thing again, reiterating the fact that there were some who were preaching the gospel, preaching it true, but doing it selfishly, desiring to put themselves forward, not to hide behind the cross of Christ, but that they may stand in front and that people may see them and recognize them. And isn't it interesting that their whole desire was just to cause Paul distress? That word distress means to cause friction. It's the idea of those bonds that were holding Paul's hands being rubbed back and forth to cause friction on his hands. It would cause him anxiety and fear. That they would chafe his hands. But what I love about the Apostle Paul is what we find in this last verse that no matter what had happened to him, no matter whether there were those who were preaching the gospel out of strife and envy or goodwill, Paul finally had joy in the results. Look at verse 18. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. How could Paul say this? Because, number one, he had the right motivation. Paul had the right motivation when it came to gospel proclamation. Because what was Paul's number one passion? His number one passion was the proclamation of the gospel. So what mattered to Paul above anything else was that the gospel was going forth. He says, what then? He says, how should we respond? When you look at somebody and somebody's preaching the gospel out of strife and envy, he says, what should we do about it? When we see somebody preaching the gospel out of goodwill, what should we do about it? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. Pretense is an excuse, somebody putting something forward to hide the state of things. We've already alluded to this. These people were preaching the gospel in order to build up themselves, in order to build up their own reputation, their own success, their own ministry. There were people who were preaching the gospel with wrong motivations, but Paul said there were those who were preaching out of truth and sincerity. Paul doesn't deny the faith of these individuals preaching with wrong motives. He just says that the gospel is not first to them. We see in this circumstance, we see in this situation that Christ is in control and the gospel would not be stopped. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Isn't that amazing this morning? That even those who were preaching the gospel with wrong motivations, the gospel was still going forth. The truth was still being proclaimed. Martin Luther said this. He said, that which does not teach Christ is not apostolic, even if Peter or Paul taught it. Again, that which does preach Christ is apostolic, even if Judas, Pilate, or Herod did it. He's saying what makes it truth is that Christ is in it, not the individual person speaking it. 
So Paul could say those who are preaching out of wrong motives are preaching the truth of the gospel, and I'm going to rejoice. And those who are preaching out of the right motives are preaching the truth of the gospel, and in that, I'm going to rejoice because Paul was not concerned about his reputation. Paul was not concerned about building up his own ministry. Paul was concerned that the gospel was going to go forth. And he said, brothers and sisters at the church at Philippi, I don't care about the motive of the person who's preaching it as long as the truth of the gospel is being proclaimed. Now, sometimes that's hard for us. Sometimes that's hard for me. Now, again, let's be clear. We're not talking about people preaching a false gospel. Anytime a false gospel is prevalent in the Scriptures, Paul was the number one he was to confront it first of all. He did not allow the false gospels to be proclaimed. He did not allow false doctrine to be taught inside the church. He was always the one to confront it. But again, we're not here talking about false doctrine. We're talking about wrong motivations. Paul says, in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. The heart of the gospel is that the proclamation of Jesus Christ goes forth. And Paul was able to say, I may not like it. I may not agree with it. But I can rejoice because God can still work in it. And we can look around and we can look at ministries of the past. We can look at preachers and evangelists and things. And people who were preaching out of the wrong motives. But they still preached the truth of the gospel. And God still worked. And God still saved. And God still drew His people unto himself. The gospel is the most important thing. That was the question I asked you at the beginning. What is the most important thing about a successful gospel ministry? It's that the gospel goes forth. As we close this morning, I want to ask you this question. Are you willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel? Are you willing to endure for the cause of Christ? Now, most Christians, when you ask this question, would, would be immediately to say yes, or, or maybe say, well, I hope I could, right? And Because when we think about this, we think about those martyrs of old. We think about those Roman Christians who went to the lions, those who went to the gallows, those who were burned at the stake for the cause of Christ and the truth of the gospel. But what, what, what if our suffering that God calls us to looks different? What if it wasn't a dramatic end? What if it wasn't being thrown to the lions or burned at the stake? But what if it was just a long period of imprisonment? What if it was losing your reputation? What if it included the regular purposeful slander of others against you? Would we still be willing to endure for the cause of the gospel? Would we be able to do as Paul did here and be willing to rejoice in the midst of such a circumstance? As we read this this morning, we can understand that by God's grace, we can. Because Paul did. And he has set this example for us to understand that the most important thing is that the gospel is proclaimed. The most important thing is not my comfort. The most important thing is not my success, is not my ability. The most important thing is not my reputation. The most important thing is that the truth of the gospel is proclaimed. And in that, we can... We must and we will rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I'm continually encouraged by the example of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, I thank you this morning that we understand that Paul was a human being just like me. 
and just like us. And that his success in ministry, Lord, his motivation, his desire, his, Lord, accomplishments were not by his own strength, but by the power of you working in and through his life, by his trust in you and in your providence and in your guidance. And Lord, as we look out upon this world and we see a world that desperately needs the gospel, just as Paul did when he looked out upon Rome, Lord, we pray that you would use us in the same way. Lord, may we submit ourselves to you wholly and completely each day, saying, Lord, you do what you desire to do with us. We give ourselves to you that the gospel may be proclaimed, that the truth may go forward, regardless of what happens to us, regardless of, how, of the circumstances you bring us through. Lord, at the end of the day, may we rejoice that the gospel is proclaimed. And Lord, we thank you. Lord, that you have called and chosen us to be ambassadors of the gospel. Lord, there is no other higher calling in this world than to be a minister of the gospel of Christ, to be one who's been saved by Christ, to be one who has been called to tell others. And Lord, as I stand here today, we're not just talking about the pastor who stands in the pulpit. We're talking about every single one of us. You have called all of us to be ambassadors of the gospel of Christ. Lord, what an awe-inspiring thing that you have chosen us to take this good news to a lost and dying world. Lord, you know our faults and our sins. Lord, you know the struggles that we have. But despite all of that, you have said, I want him, I want her to take the good news of my son to the people who need it most. Lord, may we see the joy of what it means to be a proclaimer of the gospel. Lord, may we see, Lord, the responsibility that you have put upon our hearts and lives to be the ones who take this good news to people who so desperately need it, who are so hurting, who are searching, who are so downtrodden. Lord, we pray, God, that you would use us however you see fit and that you would receive all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.